Hey guys, and welcome to the Nashville for Nobodies podcast. I am your host, Bobby Gordon, along with my co-host, Kyle Thurkey, and we're going to be talking about the Nashville music scene and the ins and outs of Lower Broadway and a bunch of other random stuff that comes to mind. So if you're thinking about Nashville or new to Nashville and want to wrap your head around what's going on, this might be a great place to start. Take a listen. What's going on, everybody? It's Kyle Thurkey with Nashville for Nobodies. And Bobby Gordon, and I'm super excited because today we are interviewing literally a superhero on Broadway. <laughs> so now that it's I made true. things super awkward, we'll get into this because I'm super excited. <laughs> Y'all, welcome the queen of Broadway, oh Sasha McVeigh. Hello. What an introduction. Yeah. Okay, I'll take it. Yeah, you're you are absolutely fantastic. You do so much for the musician community, and you're a Thank fantastic you. artist, singer, songwriter. Um, so I'm really excited to hear you tell your whole story because I only know little bits and pieces of it from our <laughs> conversations. And Bobby doesn't really know much of your story yeah. other than I, I what know you the do things that are town. on Facebook <laughs> yeah, that yeah. you do for all okay. of us. But like, as far as you and your career, I don't know anything. Okay, so I'm excited. Yeah, well, where to begin? Um, well, let's start with who you are and how you got to Nashville. Yeah, well, my name is Sasha McVeigh, and I, I, I've st- I started coming to Nashville for music professionally in 2012. Um, okay. So people are always kind of surprised to realize that I've been in town for such a long time, but that, but I don't consider it to have been that long because I wasn't able to officially actually move to town and relocate until 2017, which is when I got my my green card um, okay and i was able to literally pack up everything and and move here um from 2012 to 2016 i basically could only be in the country for 90 days at a time so i used to have to come back and forth so i generally spend like three months in the states and then i'd go home for two months and, and so where, where are you from tell everybody where you're from i'm from england originally very small 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 city called hereford very very rural um very like tennessee in a lot of ways except my area has like a lot of mountains. It'd probably be similar to Gatlinburg, I okay. guess. Okay. Um, yeah. So I grew. All of my friends growing up were were farmers. Uh, <laughs> so I had. I actually had a very very country upbringing, which people find surprising because nobody really associates country or country music with with the UK. I mean, that um, puts you more country than like seventy percent of country music. <laughs> so. <laughs> <laughs> I don't like to say that, but it's definitely true. Yeah, it's, it's arguably true. So is that where the uh, your your Venmo tag, the British redneck, redneck comes, comes from? Yeah, so I mean, really, come- I literally cultivated that name as a joke one night. Um, I got so sick of going around with the tip bucket and, you know, asking people to Venmo us. And saying, oh, you're the Venmo Sasha McVeigh. And, you know, when people are drunk at one o'clock in the morning, the last thing they want to do is spell Sasha McVeigh. And right. the last thing <laughs> I want to do is to have to keep spelling it out to them. And I was like, this just isn't working. I was like, I'm just going to do British Redneck because that, that's not hard to spell. It's funny and people are going to remember it. And yeah. it just literally took off. So now I I don't think I can ever change my Venmo because that's what people, people don't know my name. They know me as British right that's, that's amazing. <laughs> the first time I saw that from, it was one of the times that you had paid me, I just started laughing. I was like, that is incredible. Yeah, amazing. people love it. Like, that's awesome. People love it. Yeah. I mean, it was really, it's funny because country music has kind of made somewhat of a comeback in the UK in recent years. Uh, it used to be incredibly popular back in like the 70s, 80s and 90s. And obviously, kind of similar to over here, 
artists like Shania Twain kind of had that crossover success. Mm -hmm. So she was really in the UK billed as a pop artist rather than a country artist. But it definitely allowed um, country music to kind of filter through it onto mainstream radio. And then really when she, I guess, took a step back and when Garth Brooks retired or went off the grid or whatever you want to say, that was really when country music kind of died in the UK. Like CMT got taken off the air in 2002, I think. Oh, wow. Um, and it was kind of a forgotten genre for a really long time. And the only reason that okay. I knew so much about country music is my, my parents didn't have me until much like later in life. So my mum was 44 and my dad was 55 when I was born. And dad was in the military his whole life. So he'd picked up country music from being stationed with Americans, you know, okay. in different conflicts over the course of his life. So I grew up listening to his vinyls and then eventually cassette tapes of like Dolly Parton, Willie Nelson, Johnny Cash. Um, I never thought anything of it. And he used to play CMT um, and dance me around the coffee table when I was a kid. And I Aww. just always kind of listened to it. And then as I got older, I rediscovered it for myself and obviously eventually found like Taylor Swift and people like that. Um, and then gradually over the course of time, it became less of a taboo genre in the UK. Again, because of crossover success from like Lady Antebellum and Taylor Swift and stuff. Okay. Um, and it's kind of made more of a comeback now. Yeah. So, so what did your career look like when you were only able to spend a few months at a time over here and then having to disappear for a couple yeah. of months? It was crazy. It was intense. Um, it was in incredibly expensive. My Over the course of time, my parents pretty much sold anything and everything to help me fund the trips. Um, my dad was reti my dad retired when he was 66, I think. Um, he clung on until the very end. He did not want to give up his job um, <laughs> until they basically were like, okay, my dude, <laughs> you're pretty old now. <laughs> you, you gotta go, man. You gotta, you gotta go. get out of here. Um, and my mum, my mum stopped working in the nineties um, for various kind of health reasons and stuff. So I, I, I don't come from, I don't come from money. I don't, I, I never had like a fund set up for me. I think I had a small amount of money that had been set aside that was supposed to help me with college when that time came. And I ended up using it towards the music. So dad even offered to like sell his military medals to fund oh, everything. Wow. And I mean, we can go into this part later, but we eventually ended up losing the house in the UK because of debts built up from the music over the course of time. Um, but essentially what it looked like from, until I got my green card, I couldn't really earn money in the States because I was on a tourist visa. Um, oh. I wasn't on a work visa. Well, that changes everything. Yeah, yeah it does. Yeah. I wasn't on a work visa. Um, I guess the, the best place to start is that my mum and I had always had this deal. She said to me that she knew how much that I loved music and I, I've always loved like musical theater and acting and just really anything art related. Um, and when I was about 14, I kind of figured out that I wanted to pursue country music and that I was just gonna pursue music. I'd been writing songs since I was like 12 and I I, I saw a documentary on Amy Winehouse and one on Adele. And I got this idea in my head that I needed to drop everything and move to London and go to the Brit school because that's what they did, which is essentially like Juilliard, but the UK version, I suppose. Okay. 
Um, my mum very quickly gave me a reality check and explained that, you know, we as a family are not going to uproot and move to London. Uh, and <laughs> that's not a, <laughs> a viable thing to do. Um, but she did say, she said, look, I'm willing to help you as much as I possibly can because this is your dream, but you have to get an education first. So you're going to finish. You're going to finish high school. You're going to get, you know, all of your grades. You don't have to go to college. You don't want to. Um, and if you can prove to me that you're going to do your best in school, I will do my best to help you with the music. Man, I wish I had a mom like that. I know, (laughs) which is so, it's so rare. It is like the number of people I've told that story to. And it makes me sad that a lot of people don't have that, you know, relationship or experience with their parents, Um, which I guess plays into the whole notion of why I think it's so hard for musicians to get anything done Mm -hmm. for us in terms of people taking us seriously, because the majority of people do not take us seriously and they do not, consider it a real job which is absurd well said absurd yep it's um true yeah it's insane but anyway so i i held up my end of the bargain i guess you could say and my when i finished school mum being she used to she was a journalist years and years and years before i was born so she's always been quite kind of business savvy and able to track anybody and everybody down that she needs to track down and she found the contact for John Taylor at Tootsie's and she'd seen um, in a documentary about Nashville that um, musicians would go to Nashville and they would play at bars like Tootsie's and all these different bars up and down Broadway. So she got some contacts and John Taylor was one of them. And she emailed him from the UK from a, an email address that was made it look like she was my manager rather than my mum. That's the way to do it. Yeah. And <laughs> sent over some music and, you know, basically we, we, we shot our shot, I guess. And he got back to us and said, yeah, sure, bring her in on, you know, this day. I'll see what she sounds like and we'll go from there. And I was only, we were only supposed to be in Nashville for two weeks. It wasn't supposed to be anything spectacular. We were going to go to Nashville for two weeks. I was going to go to Memphis um, because we... At that time, I'd been going to Elvis Week since 2010. I was a huge, always been a huge Elvis fan. Oh, nice. So that was part of the trip. We were going to go to Florida. It was, it was not supposed to be like, let's go to Nashville and we're going to make this happen. It was, let's just see what happens. So I got to Nashville. I'd only been playing guitar for a year. I knew 17 songs on guitar. That was it. And John had said that he was going to put me up on stage for a max of 45 minutes. And he ended up leaving me on stage for two hours. That. That fits the brand. That sounds about right. Which track? That sounds about right. And it was utterly terrifying, but brilliant, actually, because I actually knew way more songs than I was giving myself credit for. And it kind of pushed me out of my comfort zone. And I mean, I'd never done anything like that, except for talent shows, you know, at school. There were no like pubs that you could just come to and play music, especially country music. Nobody was interested in that. It's just not, it, it's not, there's not that kind of scene in the UK, or at least there wasn't in 2012. So I ended up, John ended up letting me play pretty much every day of those two weeks. Um, I explained, you know, that I couldn't get paid. Um, he wanted, he explained that he could sign me to an agreement that would mean that I could get a um, work visa. But my mom didn't want me to do that. Thank God, in hindsight. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I, I literally played every day, did the you know typical thing, went to the Bluebird, played the open mic night. And then we went to Memphis, did our thing, went to Florida. And John basically said, look, 
that's fair enough if you don't want to sign anything or whatever. But if you're in town, I'm happy to put you to work and let you play just so that you have that experience and you can kind of figure this out what you want to do. So we ended up booking another trip and we came back for three months in October, I think, or September. Um, and basically every trip at that point, we were trying to build on what we did we did the last time. So mum kind of had this attitude that I get that you need to sing downtown to kind of get the, figure out your stage presence and figure out your show, but there's no point you just playing endless four hour gigs when we can only be in the country for such a short time. We need to try and get the needle moving. And we very much were aware that if I was had any hope of getting a work visa or a green card or anything by myself, I needed to tick certain criteria that the immigration department lays out so that you can actually apply for those things. So that then became our goal. Um, so I recorded that in November of 2012, I recorded an acoustic EP and I put it out the following year. Mum started reaching out to different festivals and basically offering me for free just so that I could play um the festival that i played in the summer of 2013 is a festival called country jam out in colorado and i played in the vip tent (laughs) just for all the you know the people who paid for vip but i ended up getting seen by a guy named bob romeo who at the time was the president of the academy of country music and he was so um enthralled i guess by the story and the fact that it was me and mum doing all of this because mum was with me on all of these trips she was driving the rental car Um, And that summer of 2013, we drove 11,000 miles all over the States to different bars um, and venues so that I could play all for free. Um, (laughs) That's, that's a lot. of. And Bob basically said, you know, I'm not, I'm not shitting you. Like I want you to play the Academy of Country Music Awards next year. If you think you're ready. He said, so don't answer now, but you know, in a couple of months, if you think that that's something you would want to do, here's my email. And we'll make it happen. And true to his word, he did. And I played um, the kickoff concert for the Academy of Country Music Party for a Cause Festival at the link. And it was me, uh, Cole Swindell, who at the time had just broken onto Sirius XM with um, Chilling It. It was David Nail and then Hunter Hayes headlined. And my face was on a 100-foot billboard on the Las Vegas Strip. I was also the only one that was completely live at that show because it was literally me and an acoustic guitar and then an acoustic guitar player and everybody else obviously was running tracks. And I mean, I had no idea what that was. I was just there to play my music. Wow, that's incredible. (laughs) And I think I sold sold something like 3,000 CDs just on my crappy acoustic EP that I had that we'd done ourselves. That's Um, awesome. It was insane. It was insane. (laughs) Um, And then that... That, that doesn't that. happen. That's no, not, it this that's, is not, not real not life. It doesn't happen. <laughs> it doesn't. It's cra- it was crazy. And then that led to me the, the, that next summer. So that was that was April of 2014. Um, in the summer of 2014, I ended up playing the main stage at Country Jam in Eau Claire, Wisconsin. So it was me. I can't remember who the other people were, but Luke Bryan was headlining the day that I played. Um, and I think again, I've heard of him. Yes, I know. And then it was, it was, again, it was just acoustic because I wasn't, I couldn't get paid or if I was getting paid, the pay would have to go to the band members. Um, And it was, again, just like me and another acoustic guitarist on the main stage of this festival in front of all these people. 
And we just it just kept building from there. 2015 was probably wow. the, the biggest year, I guess you could say, for me. And really the year... If, if 2015 hadn't happened, I don't think I would have got my green card. Because in 2015, we decided to start doing more stuff in the UK. And so I ended up doing a headline tour in the UK. And some of the dates sold out, which was insane. Um, I put out an al- a full album in 2015. And I ended up winning a couple of country music related awards in the UK um, because of everything I was doing. And people kind of thought that I was bridging the gap between the British country music, the very small at the time country music market and everything that was happening in Nashville. Cause I was like the only British person, at least to their knowledge that was coming over to the States and, and trying to make a career gotcha. as a British artist. Um, and that summer in 2015, I think we played five main stage festivals. I think we did We Fest, Country Jam again in Colorado, Country Jam in Wisconsin, Country Stampede in Manhattan, Kansas, and a couple of others. Um, they get real creative on these names. Yeah. I know. Yeah. <laughs> totally it's just like do. very, it's very like, ugh. Um, then something insane happened and I... I was supposed to have a bunch of meetings with labels in January of 2016 because everything was just racking up so, so quickly that people were like, who is this girl that's getting booked at all these places that doesn't have a booking agent? And there's just this woman called Linda Turpin at Hot Stuff Management that's handling everything, which is my mom under her fake management company. Hot Stuff company. Management? Yeah. I love it. I love it. That's amazing. <laughs> so my mom, honestly. It's like iconic for her. <laughs> Uh, so we had all these meetings lined up and showcases and it was going a bit crazy. Um, and I flew over on, I think it was January the 7th, 6th or 7th, 2016. And I was stopped in Minneapolis by Homeland Security uh, because they'd flagged that I was coming to the States so much. And they only had to do a quick Google search and saw that I was a musician and that I'd been doing all of these shows. And they interrogated me for like two hours and basically told me that I was being sent back and I was banned from entering the United States for five years on a tourist visa because even though I wasn't getting paid for anything that I was doing, um, it's considered furthering your career, uh, which in their mind has value. Granted, it's not monetary value, but you're essentially working for free. Um, And I was sent back. America. You can't, you can't work for free here. No, you can't they, work for free. They, they need to be able to take something right? from you. <laughs> right. And if they can't take anything from you, well, then they don't want you. <laughs> yeah. So it was insane. So I, I was sent back. Oh, man. Um, And I was in the process at that time. We'd already started filing all the paperwork for me to get my... um. My, my visa, which essentially was a gateway visa to getting the green card. And the irony is, is that you know, I got my I got my green card and I got that visa based on everything that I was doing in the States. So it's like a total catch-22 situation. <laughs> right. Like, right. please do all of these things. But you're not allowed to do all of And prove that you have things. value. But, like, you're actually not allowed to do any of these things. Like, I remember when I went to my visa in my interview. Nailing the brand. Yeah. <laughs> it's Man, very on brand, I know. It's very, uh, that's America away right there. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, luckily, it all it all eventually sorted itself out. And I, the whole of 2016, I basically just focused on doing stuff in the UK, um, which wasn't easy because UK has, you know, just as many, every country has its own problems. And one of the biggest problems 
with the music scene in the UK is that they're still so very much caught up in who is your manager, who is your booking agent. And because there is no tipping culture, you can't just go play places. You have to pay a venue a hiring fee to hire the venue or rent out the venue and then you have to sell tickets. But how are you Mm going to sell tickets if no one knows who you are? But how's anyone going to know who you are if you're not allowed to get booked on festivals because you don't have a booking agent? It's like such a never-ending cycle. That's something we're all familiar with. (laughs) Yeah. You got to play the show so people know you, but people got to know you so you can play the show. Yeah. It's like, okay, that makes a whole bunch of sense. What? Um, Music business. Yeah. (laughs) Why do we do it? I asked myself this daily. But um, eventually it all kind of worked itself out and I... I officially moved in in April of 2017. Trying to think of when I met you. Is it 2019? Maybe. Mm-hmm. That sounds about right. Because it, it was pre-pandemic. Because it was a Luke's rooftop gig oh, when God. it was like that little oh, cubby. Oh, the weird sushi stage. Yeah, the little cubby mm. space that we were yeah. tucked into as a full band. I think it's even smaller now, uh, oh honestly. I haven't been up there in a really in a while, but I think it's an even smaller stage now. Yeah. Because there's TVs behind you now. I, no, it was, yeah, it was, because uh, it was cold. So it was like winter time of 2018. Okay, that sounds right. Because I had just come back from the UK, I think, yeah. Oh, wait. Yes. Yeah. I was filling in a gig. I was filling in a gig, I think, for Joe Barron yep. at the time. Yes. 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 Uh-huh. Because that's when, because I, when I moved back, I started back on the Tootsies um, roster, like, officially. Um, because I had a green card. I could get paid and whatever. Um, and then it wasn't until the end of 2018 that I started seeking gigs, like, elsewhere. And I would do co-fronting shifts sometimes with joe or if he was sick he would have me fill in for him um because i didn't then leave the tootsie circuit until around may of 2019 like officially yeah i mean not that they actually ever knew i just stopped asking for shifts i mean they even it was funny they even asked me to do one of the live streams in 2020 and i was like i haven't played for you in a year (laughs) (laughs) They they reach out to people all the time that they haven't spoken to. Yeah, and I was like, I'm not or being... Or that they fired. Or, yeah, yeah or I was like, I'm not being like, rude, but I feel like I shouldn't do this because I'm not one of your artists. This is odd. Yeah. Okay, so when you got your green card, came here, said 2017, mm-hmm. and you hopped on the Tootsie circuit. Yes, officially, like... Officially. Yeah, and actually on the books. So were you just playing Broadway primarily or were you still like Yeah, still in the summer. In the summer we were still doing festivals and on the road. That was always kind of the way I that that I always I love the traveling aspect of what we do. Like that's my that's my favorite thing. If if I if I had to it's not even necessarily a Broadway thing, but if I had to remain in one place and just go and play shows, I would be absolutely miserable. Um so yeah, every summer we would always do a so many week trip and it would either be festivals or fairs and then fill in you know dates at different venues and stuff um and then i would come back to broadway the rest of the time because it's just the most consistent you know place to make money yeah if if you if you want to make money being a musician broadway is definitely a place yeah 100 100 percent. if you need especially like and we've talked about this going out there's a lot of right. like artists and musicians that go out and tour especially during the summer months and stuff and then come back mm-hmm. 
when they're on their off times and they play Broadway. It's yeah. just what they do. Yeah, it's- even huge people. Like, I was talking to someone the other day. I had no idea that Taylor Swift's guitar is Paul plays downtown sometimes. Mm-hmm. I mean, granted, not often, but I was yep. like, well, what? That's so bizarre. Yeah, I mean. <laughs> but it makes sense. When I first started playing Broadway, uh, one of the steady gigs I got was uh, at Legends. Mm-hmm. And the band members, three of them were from Blake Shelton's band. Yeah. So, you know. You never know who's playing downtown. Yeah, so true. So you were on the Tootsie Circuit. You were mm-hmm. touring during the summer. Um, what about recording any new music? Were you doing that during those times? That was one thing that I think I regret the most is that I wasn't as proactive as I should have been on recording and releasing music. So I had the acoustic EP that I put out in 2013. And then I had the album that I put out in 2015. Then there was kind of this dead period where I didn't really record or release anything. I put out a random song in 2016 that ended up doing really well on Spotify at the time. Um, But I should have been way more proactive on releasing music. And that's definitely something that, looking back, I regret. I I even recorded a lot of music in 2017. And then I didn't put any of it out, which makes no sense. Um, I didn't actually, after, after I put a song out in 20 March of 2016, I didn't put another song out until July, 2019. Oh, wow. I I don't know what I was doing. I was just like hoarding songs. I mean, that happens though. Like it it does. I know a lot of artists, they'll they'll sit on songs forever and just, and they're great songs too. They just yeah, don't and there was them. no real explanation. I mean, in just, hindsight, I think it was I was so consumed with the notion that that was around at the time before, you know, TikTok and reels and this whole kind of short form video content thing came to be. Um, back even in 2019, the notion was, um, well, you shouldn't release anything unless you have PR and all of these different kind of ducks lined up. And because I never had any of those ducks lined up, I was like, oh, well, I better not put it out then because who's going to listen to it? Um, But I actually should have because, you know, it feeds the algorithm of Spotify and all those things. And plus there were people that would have listened to it. I just assumed they wouldn't. Well, and like you said, in 2018, 2019, that was still that time of you only had a few ways of truly releasing your music. Mm -hmm. I mean, like TikTok wasn't a big thing. That all happened during 2020 during the pandemic COVID whatever I was at home and you had yeah. to find it was other literally outlets. a byproduct of yeah. the pandemic so yeah completely it it was definitely different than trying to release music because a lot even then it was okay you still want to release an EP or a whole album and have three singles on it that you can release mm-hmm. you know try to get on the radio or whatever however yeah. the, the algorithm how they wanted to do it um where now it's yeah you can release it anytime any day anywhere and it can be anywhere from a 10 second clip to the whole damn song and you have multiple platforms that people you i mean i don't know how many followers you have on tiktok um but you know there's a lot of people that have millions of followers yeah they do it's insane a couple 10 second video clips and all of a sudden everybody's going and buying your song and it's it just blows up from there it's crazy it's cra- it's a totally different. You, you, you totally could different you couldn't world. do that in 2018, 2019. That that was no. not. No. It really was not a. And thing. you were almost encouraged not to. Like I can't remember the number of conversations that I would have where people would say things like, 
you know, oh, well, don't post a clip of the song because then that spoils the surprise when it comes out. Right. And Which now, is totally opposite now. People will literally post the whole video on social media. Or, or they'll, it turns or they'll, out that was a lie. Yeah, or yeah. they'll do like the intro and then the verse yeah. and then the chorus. And then and all of a sudden, like, all you have to do is just watch four I know. videos in a row it's and a you've totally heard the whole song. Thing. It's Yeah, it's so weird. And, and also another thing was, was back then, is it, things were told to us, oh, we well, don't want to release it until it's ready or you yep. don't want to release until the whole thing's out. Because you don't want people stealing your ideas or stealing yes, your songs. Yes, that was a rampant mm-hmm. kind so, of myth, uh, almost. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, the the few albums that we did put out, it's not like we had a, anybody like really big following us, but like we never worried about people stealing our stuff. You know, I I don't know, and that was right. in that was in like right. 2010, 20, like 2008 to twenty ten. Yeah, like it, I don't know. It, it, the music industry is very weird. It's uh, ever changing. It, it's ever changing, and I think it, it it does make it harder for artists because no sooner do you kind of learn or you think you've learned the way that it's currently working, it changes again, and then you have to unlearn everything you just learned, and you, then learn something else. You it's have very to be willing to constantly. Yep. Yeah, yeah. We are, and you have to be willing to constantly evolve. And there's so. Being artists and musicians, we don't want to. We're like, no, this is what we're working on. This is what yeah, we're doing. Yeah, this is like we what want, I know. We this want is to how perfect I do it. it. Yeah. And now you're changing it. And we're like, ah, damn it. If we want to do anything else, we got we to gotta mm-hmm. roll with that. Yeah. And it's that it makes it really It does. Tough. And I mean, as a person personally that hates change, like I will not even like move a piece of furniture. That's what I'm saying. A lot of musicians hate change. I hate it with it's, a burning desire. Like. I think that's just a human thing. Like, it's a comfort thing. We don't like change in You're general. You're probably right. I know, like, some of my ADHD features are that, like, I'm, I'm cool with change as long as you're not changing the one thing that I need to be <laughs> yes, there. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> so, like, you can change everything else, but if you touch that, we're going to fight. <laughs> yeah, if you touch that, I'm going to murder you. Just saying. <laughs> that's amazing. All right. No, it's... <laughs> Yeah, he's like, no. It, it hurts. This is a, this is I'm saying it's amazing because life. I relate to that so much. So in 2019, you released some new music. Mm-hmm. Um, single album. It was a single. Ha- was a single. Yeah, I haven't put out. I haven't really put out another album or EP since 2015. Okay. Tried to keep it to singles, and I mean, even then, I put that song out in 2019, and then I didn't put another one out until. 2021 i think i put two out in 2021 i put out a couple last year after after covid i kind of took this attitude i i I accepted that my mistake was not focusing enough on recording and releasing music and i wanted to kind of rectify that so i made a conscious decision that i was going to record and release as much music as i possibly could while still kind of maintaining some sort of strategy so that I wasn't just putting out music and nobody was listening to it. Um, so like this year, for example, I put out a song probably four weeks ago now-ish. And then I have another song coming out in just over a week's time. And then there'll be another one five weeks after that. I'm trying well, to like keep myself to it. Which one was? Which one did you put out four weeks ago? Black Label. Black Label. It's mm-hmm. a good song. I Thank like you. that. I got to play that one with you. I like it. <laughs> it was fun. I'll put that up on the uh, playlist. Oh, yeah, yeah, that'd be great. Oh, it's it's yeah. a good song, man. It's a good song. I I like it. 
I really enjoy your music. Your writing is really uh, well thought out, in Thank my you. opinion. Um, and you, you just share real life shit instead of like. What's the word that I'm the looking fluff. for? Yeah. <laughs> the fluff. Yeah. The fluff. Like, I don't know. I... That was honestly one really hard thing when I started coming to Nashville was realizing that co-writing was such a thing. Because, of course, when where I was growing, where I grew up and where I was in the UK, I didn't know anybody else who wrote that, songs. That, so that's what I was going to ask you. Yeah. Do you co-write here in town? or is I it, do. You do? Mm-hmm. Okay. It's something, it took me a really, really long time to get comfortable doing that because i think if you have grown up writing songs on your own especially for a long period of time um there's like a shyness to share your ideas with other people especially when they're in such a raw form yeah um and it's taken me a long time to get to a place where i'm not good at confrontation in front of people um i can do it over text i feel like a lot of people can probably relate to that but if you call me on the phone or i have to do it face to face it's my biggest hatred um we and just shouldn't call people anymore. I period. know, saying no, yeah, like, no more calling. Don't never people. call me. I was like, do people call people? <laughs> people call me, and I'm just like, oh, this uh, is this could be done in a text. Um, but yeah, it took me a long time in rights to put my foot down if I thought my ideas were being warped into something that I didn't want them to be, um, or to just say, you know, I don't really think that's a good idea. I prefer this because um, you have to do that in the room otherwise there's no point it's called co-writing for a reason it's supposed to be a mutual collaboration um but it did take me a long time to get into some sort of rhythm with that but now i love it and i try and i, I still try and keep a good balance between writing on my own and writing with other people because it's like it's like anything else it's a muscle and if you don't use it then you're gonna lose it um but i try and do kind of an equal amount of of both okay so looking at your career from the business side of things, mm-hmm. um, when your mom was manager and doing all of the legwork, how involved were you in it and how much were you learning during that process? Oh, I was super involved. So what we what we tried to do, one, we, we basically at the beginning identified things that she was able to do and then things that I was able to do. Um, so mom has always been very, very good at... Um, constructing emails and talking to people on the phone um she's really great at researching and things like that i basically took on the role of learning as much as i possibly could about social media video editing photo editing um that kind of side of things any of the really kind of overt technology based things that i knew that she just was not even remotely interested in um but oftentimes she would like dictate the email and i would i would type it up we were both very much involved with finding finding contacts um you know for venues or festivals or things that we needed to do it was a we we joke that we were like the Thelma and Louise of country music because generally if there if you saw one you'd see the other. <laughs> we were never like it would never be mom. It was always mom and me, and it would never be just me. It was me, and then mom would be close behind. Um, and then obviously, like in the beginning, she drove the rental cars and stuff because I wasn't over the age of twenty five and couldn't drive them. Right. Um, she always handled like booking the hotels and stuff, but she was very very conscious that she knew that. Um, because she has a lot of health issues. So she knew that there would come a point where she wouldn't be able to do a lot of those things. And she wanted 
me to be able to handle them by myself until such a time that I found a manager that, you know, aligned correctly and wanted to champion me in a similar way that she always championed me. Um, so, I mean, now I pretty much do everything by myself. That, um, that was going to be my question. Did she like teach you all like yeah, all those yeah. things? Of so, I mean, I've never... Just to I, get I'll, you lined up. Yeah, like I'll say this. I'm never <laughs> going to be as good as she is. Um, <laughs> talking to people on the phone or just getting people to do what she needs them to do. Some people she's just a, have that I confidence. Know, she's just there. a wizard. I, I've met your mom and she's such a sweet lady. And um, I can I can see that. Co- she just has that kind of demeanor yeah. about her that like, she can get shit done. She's very good <laughs> at reading people. And so she's very, very good, even over the phone, at kind of reading situations and knowing instantly the way to pitch an idea to somebody and the kind of nuances that she needs to do to get them to say yes. Um, that is something that I've never had or understood. <laughs> so I just have to kind of do what I can do. Um, but yeah, I mean, she absolutely set me up uh, for success in the sense that um, when, when she kind of took a step back and just was able to just be mum again, um, I didn't feel like a fish out of water. So speaking of that, how what was the relationship dynamic like going from mother-daughter to like business partners yeah it was super easy which i know is weird i mean I, I i can imagine that a lot of people would struggle with that but mom and i have a very 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 close relationship um she mom had cancer when she was pregnant with me and the, the reason that she ended up getting pregnant at the age of 44 is when she had the cancer and uh she it was multiple myeloma and basically the doctor said that her only chance of survival was to go on a um, uh, a trial kind of treatment plan, like a, she, to be, be a guinea pig, essentially, for some kind of drug and treatment that had never been used before. And they asked her, you know, all the normal questions that, you know, blah, blah, you know, you're not pregnant, blah, 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 blah. Cause, and, and then they explained to her, you know, there's, there's a good chance that after you go through the treatment, you won't be able to have any more children. And of course, mom joked. She's like, I'm 42. I had my children when I was 18 and 19. Um, so I have two siblings that are a lot older than me. Um, so she went on the treatment and she went for a checkup at some point and they asked her, you know, are you pregnant? She was like, no, um, I can't get pregnant. And they did the you know urine test or whatever, just because they have to. And she was pregnant. And the doctors told her that she needed to have an abortion because I was going to have Down syndrome or be deformed or be in a wheelchair and all of these horrifying things that they said to her. And mum said, I'm not having an abortion. And they told her, well, you know, that's really unsafe for you to be on this treatment and be carrying a baby. And she said, okay, well, I'm not going to have the treatment anymore then. And she went off the treatment and beat the cancer. And she died twice giving birth to me. Um, And I was born six weeks early. And they basically, like there was a solid chance that I wasn't going to make it and neither was mum. And we both did. So I think that experience subconsciously for me, because you know, I was a baby, Um, but certainly for her created this unwavering bond whereby mum was convinced that she needed to do whatever she possibly could to keep me safe 
and to make me happy um which is extremely profound um and i didn't really fully realize the scope of that until i was much older and looking back it's funny because i remember i remember when i was in we call it primary school and basically you go to primary school in the uk from the age of four five ish until you're 10 and then you go to high school from age 10 to 16 and then you do two years at a sixth form college from 16 to 18. And when I was trying to get into high school, they were trying to get me in a very specific one. And the reason that mum and dad wanted me to go to that high school is it was a small high school. Um, I think in each each like year group, there were only like 75 kids, which is like nothing. That's, that, that is <laughs> nothing. nothing. I had college classes that were bigger. <laughs> like, yeah, that, that's I think nothing. the whole school, the whole high school had... Oh, my 300 God. or 400 people, kids. That was it. And the reason they wanted that is I, wow. when I was seven, I was diagnosed with a very severe peanut allergy and it ended up being all nuts and nut products. And so they wanted it to be a small school. So A, I could get a better education and B, it would be easier to handle the allergy situation. And I remember, I, I, I just ha- remember at the time, all of these kind of stressful things that mom and dad were having to do. They were having to go to like meetings and, and, and courtrooms and hearings. And there were times when mom would be crying. And I didn't realize at the time, it wasn't until I was older, but it was because I kept getting refused entry into the school because we weren't in the catchment catchment area. And so my parents were having to provide all of this evidence and proof and to say why that shouldn't matter and why I should be allowed to go to the school. So do you know what I mean? Like from the get-go mum was determined to okay this is what we need to do because this is what's best for you we're going to do that and so by the time you got to the music business stuff she was just like easy nothing nothing." yeah i died twice already what can you do yeah basically i mean i'm not joking there was one occasion when we were driving through kansas and there was a tornado warning the sky literally turned green i was absolutely terrified and um I mean, not to go into all the details, but mum has mum has a, a, a degenerative brain disorder called Chiari 1 malformation, which we now know is why she died twice giving birth to me, because it affects basically your brain stem and your spinal cord. Okay. And when she, when she gave birth to me, she had an eclamptic fit and fitted backwards. And of course it like interrupted all of that that's going on at the back of her head. Um, so when we were in Kansas, this must have been summer of 2014 um and i was like we need to like get off the road and i'm like freaking out because it's a tornado we don't have that shit in the uk <laughs> and i and mom like and mom dead ass like completely like casual and she was like listen if this thing in my head hasn't killed me yet i'm not gonna go out by a bloody tornado we're go- we're gonna keep going it's like okay mom oh that's amazing. i absolutely love that's your mom <laughs> so when i made the comment about superhero i didn't know we were gonna unveil an actual superhero oh, origin real, story yeah, here. right yeah, mom's the real superhero for sure this is for amazing sure. so i think i mean obviously when mom was functioning as my manager she had to she had to do a lot of things that are, are difficult you know for a parent like one of the things she was very conscious of was that the worst thing that she could possibly do was just blow smoke up my ass all the time and that it wasn't going to be to my benefit for her to tell me your voice is perfect all the time and 
yes the outfit you're wearing looks amazing and yes every single song you write is the best song in the entire universe um she was always like very very honest um and she'd tell me if i wasn't performing at my best or if i was touching my hair too much or if my posture wasn't right and probably (laughs) to an outsider's perspective they thought man you know her mum's an ass but it wasn't that at all she just wanted me to, to succeed and be the best that i possibly could be and I guess because she was sacrificing so much as well to make this happen. She didn't want any of that to be like in vain. Um, So we just had to kind of adjust the relationship, but I never, I never like took it as criticism. It was like helping me. Yeah. That's, that's good. (laughs) That's really good to have. I mean, she always used to joke. She was like, I don't want to be one of those American idol parents i so i mean to to relate to that (laughs) i have worked with people in the past that have um the helicopter parents that are managers and uh uh, we called them momagers yes and um it it was terrible just to the point like they micromanaged everything they did and then as soon as i stepped on a stage they would have to micromanage me and i'm like i'm not your kid i know and that's not how this works like you you're not paying me i don't have a contract with you like uh. (laughs) not how this works that's definitely a musician thing because like our our self-confidence and stuff is so fragile that we will defend it with our lives yeah we, oh, we 100%. absolutely do yeah it is so really that, hard to be like you're not doing that right and you want to bet because this is how i'm gonna do it forever and i'm gonna oh, make yeah. a living doing mom it and, I and you get, can bite me and mom then we'll and go i home would and get cry. mom and i would get into it but i think that was honestly in a weird way it was helpful because because i knew how invested she was in everything and how much she loves me and cares for me yes i would get irritated at first because we all do um it's just it's the ego and it's it's everything else but once i'd take like a step back i'd be like okay wait she wouldn't be saying this she's not saying this to be mean no she's she's saying saying it because she must be right because otherwise she wouldn't be saying it also your mom seems to be one of those people that like just she learned and knows these things and how they work she's not just kind of going into it blindly where a lot of the parents that uh that i worked with um they were managing their kids. It was just they were trying to take control of it because it seemed like they had a, some kind of motive to gain out of it. Oh, God. If that makes any sense. Yeah, it does. <laughs> um, so it was never like because they did it because they wanted to see their kids succeed. They did it because they wanted their kid to be famous and rich. Oh, Lord. And or you have the parents that kind of project their dreams onto their children. That, too. Um, That's... I, that's mm-hmm. I hate that, and I saw a lot of that when I was first coming to Nashville. Oh, I I still see it sometimes, and it's yeah, it's. Hard. I I love it when um, parents will bring their kids, and they'll be like, "Oh, this is my son or daughter, and they're a musician or artist, and they want to be here." But you can always tell the ones that like genuinely care for their kids and just want their kids to live out their dream, and the ones that are just pushing. Mm-hmm. the parents dreams onto the kids yeah you you can see it in the interactions they have with us downtown for sure yeah 100 percent. so um speaking of downtown let's let's get back on onto downtown a little bit so you did tootsies and then 
and you said it was like 2019 you were you're kind of getting out of the tootsies thing and you started searching elsewhere down Mm -hmm. on broadway and that's when you got on the tc circuit no actually i initially so i i played a lot with joe baron um we 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 co-friended a ton of shows together um, and a lot of those were like on the TC circuit and just different mm-hmm. circuits. But in 2019, actually, I when I kind of unofficially quit Tootsies, um, I started working at Redneck Riviera, and I was pretty much exclusively playing for playing for them. Um, then, of course, and then I was just you know picking up gigs at certain random places. Um, well, you then, have you have the freedom to once you're away from Tootsies. Yes, exactly, exactly. <laughs> um, then obviously COVID happened and nobody was really playing any shows. And it wasn't until it wasn't until 2021 that I actually got hired by the TC Hospitality okay. bars. And I started playing regularly on their roster. And at some point, it, it wasn't long. Whenever the 1230 Club opened, I started playing. Um, I started playing for them. And at that time, they weren't being booked by Jam Factory. They were just being booked by like an independent yeah. entity. Um I also started getting random gigs at Old Red. I think that started in 2021 as well. Um, and now I pretty much play. I have a regular Monday gig at the 12:30 Club that's been the same for probably the last two years at least. What time do you play at 12:30 Club? Eight till midnight. Oh, okay. Yeah, on a Monday. Sometimes on Mondays I'll walk down to we. I play Legends Monday mornings, so oh, I'll, cool, I'll, yeah. I'll walk down to Hattie B's and I'll nice, pass it. yes. And I was, I was like, when do you play there? Because I passed it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but no, you're, you're there, you're there I'm much there later. Late. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and then I'll get random gigs at Old Red from time to time. We recently got onto the uh, the roster at Wild Horse Saloon, so we've been getting random dates there. Um, I usually play every Wednesday at one of the TC bars. Thursdays is either a TC bar or a, or like Whiskey Row or something like that. And then in the last, yeah, probably year. So from like, yeah, from this time last year, um, we've been pretty much on the road on the weekends. We've been going out and playing, you know, different cities and stuff. Cause I kind of stopped doing that for a while, mainly because, um, we got a house and I was like, I have a mortgage now. I have responsibilities. I can't be I need a little bit more. Yeah, I can't be going. Here. I can't be going and playing a festival for two hundred dollars in Montana just because it's, it's cool. Yeah. Um and then I just eventually started finding venues that, you know, do pay decently well on the road and will pay for hotels and things like that so it does make it worth it and it still gives me my little fix of the road. man if venues pay for hotels that helps so incredibly oh immeasurably much. immeasurably so yes. incredibly much like it really does mm-hmm. <laughs> it'll help yeah. save a lot and it of always money surprises time. me too because the hotels they always put you up in are always bougie and that always surprises me because i'm like because also the number of times that it's happened whereby I've maybe needed an extra hotel or so hotel hotel room like my parents have wanted to come or something and I'll say to them you know can you book it and I'll like pay for it but with your discount and so they're still pay- paying like $120 a night for a room whereas if I'm booking rooms I'm booking like Motel 6 for yeah like well it's it's right? good so those those and bougie like, hotels what are you guys doing like the bougie hotels go to the venues and they'll That's be like, crazy. "Hey, yeah, they'll some of them will offer like so Alof does that." They're, no, okay, yeah. that tracks. Yeah, they 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 do. They they reach out. It's 
I, I know a guy that runs some boutique hotels in San Diego. Okay. And I, I'm listening to his podcast and stuff, and he, that's some of the things. They reach out to these venues now because they know these venues are moving people around. Mm-hmm. And so if they can get consistent people coming in every week. Yeah, like, at hey, a discount. We'll give you a discount. Get them in there. They don't have to worry about wow, it. Wow, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Damn. Yeah. Yeah. I wish learning uh, stuff. Yeah, I wish Moonshine <laughs> Beach and Flats would do that down in San Diego, but they don't. No, they don't. You have uh, to book your own hotel. They will. I uh, granted, they do. There is a hotel that they get a discount with, but it's still like one hundred and eighty nine dollars a night, which is too much for me. What's the hotel? Uh, do you remember? It's something like Holiday Inn. Okay. Do you know what I mean? Like yeah. it's one of those. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I'm like, ah, oh, well, this Motel Six in El Cajon is, or however you say it, is. I don't know, $62. I'm going to do that. <laughs> I mean, depending on where you're staying, you, just got, you have to be careful. Oh, I know. We stayed, we stayed in a sketchy-ass oh, place the last time we were there. It was fine, though. Like, no one died. So fine. <laughs> no one died. We only got shot at four times. Yeah, it's died. fine. Like, our, literally, our door didn't shut lock. Like, our the door of the hotel oh, room did not shut. Nice. I've been in a couple of them, man. I've oh, been touring for years. I've, I've been through that. Yeah. So, okay, uh, Broadway. We're, yeah, Broadway. That's where we were. <laughs> so, yeah, I guess when did did you start becoming, like, more active in the musician community mm-hmm. as far as, like, helping out and yeah. all of that? That's, like, a really weird story. I was talking to someone the other day about this. Um, I can't remember, like, why it came up, but it was kind of – they were basically asking me the notion of, like, did you set out to do this? Did you always want to be involved? Like – And I just sort of said, no, it happened like really organically just out of the notion that I saw problems and nobody was fixing them. And I was for some reason just like, okay, I'm going to do that. (laughs) But what happened was um, in towards the end of 2019, it was probably like November, something like that. I'd been and over those last like couple of months of 2019, I felt like I'd consistently seen people posting in the different gig groups or just on their public, you know, Facebook pages that they were being mugged or assaulted, attacked, you know, whether with a weapon or just somebody's bare hands. Yeah. There was a lot um, of that. Yeah. There seemed to be, I seemed to be consistently like seeing you know, bartenders. It wasn't always musicians. Just yeah. People, it was just, just the people working. Downtown. Yeah. People were working downtown and they were going back to their cars at night or even walking to gigs and they were having to deal with whether it be you know homeless people or just thugs um downtown assaulting assaulting them and either stealing money or stealing gear or something and it just kept it, I, I remember i kind of made a mental note in my head that i wasn't even really aware of myself that oh wow i'm seeing a lot of that right now and nobody seems to be doing anything there was a big influx of musicians moving here just people moving here from um, tw- late 2016 is like when 2015 is when the boom started, but mm-hmm. late 2016 is when we had this like massive rush all the way till the pandemic. Mm-hmm. And so bringing so many people into town and like obviously more uh, buildings going up and stuff yeah. like that, like people knew that there was money here. And so it was just, oh. This is an easy way to rob people. That's exactly. That was literally their thought processes. Yeah, that doesn't were, shock me. And that's just what happened. And especially, you went on the news and you talked about uh, um, 
how much like money the musicians would carry plus how much yeah. our gear was gear. worth. Yeah. And so it was easy for them to like go and mug somebody holding a bunch of gear with yeah. a pocket full of money. And that's essentially what was happening. And, and yeah. the kind of the straw that broke the camel's back, I guess for me was a guy named Adam Rausch. Um, he was mugged at gunpoint downtown. And again, like I'm not saying that this is, this is, the, right but because i knew him personally and i played shows with him that really struck a nerve um and adam had had a lot of issues with i mean this is his story to tell but he'd had a lot of issues with drugs and alcohol and things like that and he'd kind of finally gotten his life in order and then i'd seen that this had happened and something just like snapped within me and i just was i remember i reached out to adam and i was like i need you to explain to me exactly what happened because we're going to take this to the news. And I started compiling other musicians kind of testimony and stories. And I went to the news with it. And I said, look, nobody's talking about this. There's not a police presence downtown. Here's proof of how many officers we're seeing down there. And all of these things are happening. And I went on the news and I tried approaching the mayor's office and different people. And nobody was taking me seriously or even taking those calls or emails. So I started a change.org petition and it got 35,000 signatures in the space of like four days. And I then got a call from the mayor's office asking me to come in and have a meeting and discussions because I guess I was like ruffling feathers essentially. And um, even during that time, I was still continuing to kind of go on the news and bring up, you know, various problems like the loading zones and all of the different mm -hmm. stuff that was going on at the time. And we actually started to make really great progress. And then of course COVID happened and Broadway got shut down. So all of those problems and their solutions got shelved. Um, and my focus then for a while shifted to, okay, well, how can I continue helping the community during COVID? And it became really obvious very quickly that a lot of musicians were struggling a to even file for unemployment because the form was so freaking complicated you helped me with that yeah and that and then b months and months were going by and nobody was receiving their benefit payments and i remember i joined a couple of facebook groups that weren't specifically for musicians that were just for people who were struggling with this the system and i realized just how huge of a problem it was and i thought well i can't help everyone but maybe i can help the music community so I reached out to Marsha Blackburn um, and representative Jim Cooper and a bunch of different district representatives and just kind of, I, I didn't know what I was doing. Also, I didn't know if those were the right people to talk to, but I'd already seen a ton of stories on the news about it. And the, the, the rhetoric kind of was that, oh, well, the Department of Workforce and Labor are very overwhelmed and they're trying their best. And I was like, that's not good enough. People aren't getting their money and nobody could work. So how are we paying? How is anyone going to pay yeah, their bills? And, and I reached out to those representatives and they started filing these legislative requests. And within the space of a week, people were starting to get their money. So I just started basically telling everyone, listen, this is the information I need. If you can send it to me, I can get you your benefits in a week. And I ended up helping, I think, just shy of 500 musicians get there. I was one of them. Benefit payments. <laughs> during covid yeah i'm i'm grateful for that that's for sure I'm, I'm grateful for everything you've done for all of us in town i mean you really have done a lot from 
getting more police presence downtown, helping people with their benefits to helping make sure that all the venues have access to parking passes and validation to recently the noise ordinance and <laughs> all the other bullshit that goes right, on. Which we covered in the last podcast. So we, when we, we talk about that here in just a second, yeah. we can we can build on that. I think it wasn't it it wasn't it it didn't come out of a notion of like I want to be the representative for musicians. It simply came out of nobody is doing this and I don't understand why. Let me see if I can figure it out. And especially during 2020 i mean granted looking back i probably should have focused more of my attention on posting on tiktok however (laughs) that didn't happen um i had nothing to do and but there were still problems and i guess my selfish reason for getting involved was that i'm a very organizational organization-based person i can't just sit and be still and quiet like even if i'm watching tv or a film i'm on my computer sending emails or doing stuff i can't just sit i find it really difficult which is its own problem um so my selfish reason for getting involved was i was bored out of my freaking mind and i needed something to do and this gave me something to do it gave me like a purpose um and then it just kind of snowballed and spiraled from there um to the point that recently when this noise ordinance thing happened and i went to the council meeting I remember I pushed past some of the Tootsies kind of individuals. Um, we were all kind of asked to come out of the council meeting and meet in like a circle in the lobby area by Councilman Syracuse. And I you pushed past everyone because my, my whole reason for going to that meeting was I didn't want anyone to say anything stupid because essentially the ordinance had already been changed and the people that were there speaking just refused to accept the change, which is another story. Um, and I kind of pushed past them and said, you know, Councilman Syracuse, like, my name is Sasha McVeigh. Oh, no, I don't think I even said my name. I said, Councilman Syracuse, I just want to say, like, the views that were just represented by those individuals do not represent the views of the majority of musicians. And he cut me off and he was like, oh, hi, Sasha. And I was like, oh, hi. And he was like, yeah, your reputation precedes you. And I was like, oh, shit. Okay. I've never spoken to you in my life, but you know who I am somehow. I was like, I don't know if that's a good or a bad thing. Um, But yeah, that kind of, even just that happening the other week gave me a bit of kind of perspective on, it just goes to show you can make a difference even if you're just doing little small things. Mm -hmm. Um, And then, yeah, it was really this. These these are small (laughs) things. (laughs) Just just little tiny issues (laughs) don't affect our daily lives at all. Oh my gosh. But yeah, and I mean, I was, I mean, God, there's other things. Like I ended up being ad- made admin of the gig group, which was super unexpected when David obviously left, um, left Nashville. Um, I mean, that's been amazing because I was able to kind of then really kind of say like, if anybody needs anything, this is how you contact me and, you know, et cetera. Um, people I've in recent kind of conversations with people, people have asked like, oh, what's your goal here? Like, what's your goal? I don't really know. My goal is just to address issues as they come up and try and make them better. Um, And I just refuse to accept. I I refuse to accept the attitude that seems to be spun by different kind of bureaucratic entities um, who I will not name. Uh, There are several uh, that they've been working on these issues for a really long time. And it's just it just takes time and there's red tape. 
I don't accept that because and, and you have proven that that is not the case right yeah. and, I, and, I, and I think it helps also I said this to I said this to um, I had a meeting with Benton McDonough who's you know quote unquote the nightmare um, basically he's like the mayor of entertainment and he basically deals with everything that goes on on Broadway after a certain from like 6pm onwards I guess okay. you could say um, he deals with nightlife and things like that um, and I said to him, I said, I think one of the reasons that I have been able to get things done is I'm not affiliated with any kind of organization. I'm not, I'm not attached to the musicians union. I'm not attached to a council seat. I, I'm not, I don't work for the mayor's office. I don't work for Metro in any capacity. I am literally a musician. So I can pretty much say and do whatever I want and ruffle feathers and annoy people and break the rules and break formalities to get things done. And, and you, nobody can really say anything. And yeah, I was like, you don't have to worry about any like No, I don't have to push back or No, like, I don't have to like I mean and I and I get it. You when you when you are in those positions, you do. You have to schmooze, you have yeah, to say it's, things. It's your certain, job on the Yeah, line. you have to it's say a, things a certain way. You you have to you have to go around the red tape. You can't just cut through it. Um, I don't have to do any of that. And I think that's what's been helpful. That's also what's made a lot of people not like the way that I do things, but. I love the so way you do things. with the results. <laughs> <laughs> I mean. The results are there and they're positive for all of us in, in a good way. So, you know. So let's, let's take a second and break down the sequence of events for the noise mm. ordinance mm-hmm. because there was a whole lot of people saying a whole lot of things yeah. and from from what you were talking to people about and understanding like how did that all come about what was from beginning to end how did that work out i think the the biggest issue with that entire situation um was that there was such a lack of communication with musicians, sound engineers, people who actually work in the bars. Um, if if musicians or somebody to represent musicians had, or just people who work in the bars, just, just your average people that work in the bars, if somebody like that had been in those discussions that were being had about what should be in this bill, what shouldn't be in this bill, what we need to take out, what we need to put in, et cetera, et cetera, None of what happened over the course of that week with a lot of the misinformation that was being spread, the protests, etc. None of that would have happened. The problem is, is that the powers that be drafted up this ordinance uh, themselves without consulting literally anybody. Then when there was pushback, they simply brought in people like Steve Smith and um, Bill Miller and um, the, the big bar owners... Um, and I think Dave Pomeroy from the Musicians Union was also in those meetings. And none of those people passed on any of the information. So by the time by the time word got to the musicians about the noise ordinance, all we knew was the initial draft that had actually been filed. Right. Um, and submitted forward to the council. We had no idea that there had been all of these meetings going on in the background where people had the bar owners and Dave from the union and other individuals had been going back and forth saying, okay, no, this needs to be taken out. Yes, we're okay with this. We had no idea that that was happening. So the first thing we heard was, okay, we're going to make 
all we're going to make a decibel limit of 85 we want uh monitor wedges removed from all of the stages because they create noise pollution all of the doors and windows need to be closed we want all outside speakers to be taken away um and several other points as well um nobody brought nobody ever thought to bring a musician or several musicians or sound engineers who actually understand how the sound works downtown into any of those conversations. Um, so as a consequence, A, the language in the initial draft of the bill was completely wrong because most of these individuals, most of the council members um, and people in those political positions did not know the difference between a speaker and a monitor wedge. Right. So there was a lot of confusing jargon in the bill because they didn't know the difference. Um, and then of course what transpired was people built the protest and built the backlash around that initial draft of the bill, which we did not realize until the day before the protest wasn't what was going forward to the council. When I found out that I tried to notify, um, Scott Collier and John, um, cause obviously they were the ones that were organizing the protest. Um, I tried to notify them and say, hey, you know, actually I've had a long discussion with Benton McDonough, the nightmare, who uh, reached out to me. Um, and actually Steve Smith himself was even in a meeting and approved the bill that is being put forth tomorrow in the council meeting. And it's completely different to the bill that everybody is basing their opinion on. Um, you know, this is what it has. And the only thing that's going to be taken away are the outside speakers. Um, so they knew all of that. But obviously it would have looked embarrassing for them to have had to cancel the protest. Uh, <laughs> so I don't, I don't understand how it would look embarrassing. We could be like, ah, we made a change. We don't need to have the protest. It's good. Like, how, how is that? Right? You could like, totally spin that to be like, oh, we're so good at this. Right. Yeah. That was my thought. Like, I was if, you like, were, if you were smart and good at what you did, that's what you would have done. Yeah. So I was, <laughs> it put me in a really awkward position because I then, what I then tried to do to kind of rectify the situation, because my then main concern was, okay, they're not canceling this protest. I don't want any musicians outside of the Tootsie's organization to go and be a part of this protest and to look like a fool. Like, I don't want that. So I made, you know, a post in the gig group um, and the discussion group and said, hey guys, actually, this is what's happened. The protest is still going ahead, but there's not really any need for it. Um, I'm going to attend the council meeting purely to try and steer the narrative that, you know, these people might not want to accept reality, <laughs> but we as musicians over here do. Um and so I ended up going and, you know, the protest happened and they filmed it or whatever. Um, and we went into the council meeting and there was basically a section of the meeting whereby people could stand up and speak to the council um, on all of the different issues that were being debated and presented. And oh my God, like, first of all, I mean, I know that a lot of people don't have time for people in local government, but um, the amount of issues and bills that they were having to go through just that day, I think they were in session until three o'clock in the morning. Jesus. Just going through everything. I literally don't wow. know how a person is capable of doing that. But anyway, so they started calling people to speak and somebody spoke from Icon Entertainment, which is um, Johnny Cash's nudies. 
and Frank Sinatra, the Frank Sinatra bar. And again, that didn't make sense because the woman that spoke was literally in those meetings. Um, but I think it was more for like hyperbolic effect than anything else. Then Scott Collier got up and spoke. Uh, John got up. And then what happened was they started calling all of these names and they, people weren't there, but I recognized some of the names and I recognized them as like people that work on the Tootsie circuit. And then they would get to a name of somebody that was there and they'd be, you know, hollering and like in the back. And I, and the person would get up and be like, oh, I didn't know I was supposed to speak. Uh, someone must've put my name down and yeah, this bill sucks. And then would get off the mic. My God. Uh, and I very it, they quickly, were calling people up that signed that petition. No, yeah, so no, what they did is what you can do. I learned this as this was all happening. Uh, you have so many hours before the council meeting that you can sign up as a speaker and they let 10 people speak. And basically what Scott did was he signed up 300 people that work within the Tootsie's organization to speak so that they would be guaranteed to have the 10 speaker spots. Because that sounds like a fantastic idea that's <laughs> so that's how come that's how come when names were being read off and they there was so many people not there it's because a lot of those people didn't go to the council meeting and nobody knew they were supposed to speak except i think three individuals and that was scott john and i think john stone all i know is whenever you put po- i had every intention of like going to the protest and being a part of all this because like, you know, i was like yeah oh, same is, like if, if, it had been have, ne- if it had been right? necessary this is gonna go have a it. negative effect on us like let's do something about this and then when i saw your post and you're like oh well, everything's basically taken care of i'm still gonna go and like represent us and you know and talk to this person i was like okay there's literally no need for us like it's it's been handled and you're yeah. you're doing you're doing what you need to to make sure that it's going forward. Like, yeah. I was like, okay, like what? There's no point. And I had some friends that that, that went, and I, you know, their their own prerogative. But after talking to them, I, same thing. I was like, why were you there? Like, <laughs> yeah. And I think that was. I mean, I will say this: Jeff Syracuse was very. And so basically, what happened was after the everybody had after the ten people had spoken. Um. Jeff stood up and basically said, hey, anybody who's here for the noise ordinance, like, we're going to go outside and we're going to talk about it. Um, Because he was the one that um, drafted it um, and was basically leading the charge on the noise ordinance. So, you know, a ton of us stood up. You know, I got in front, spoke to Jeff very briefly. And then everybody kind of gathered in a circle. And, um, I mean, there was some heckling and blah, blah, blah. Um, But Jeff essentially explained the whole situation and very very kindly admitted that one of his errors was not having anybody in those meetings that was a musician or somebody that actually worked in the bars um but i mean he said he said you know your boss was there like steve smith was there and he approved this bill i don't know why he didn't tell you (laughs) and i mean i really wanted to be like i told them that's that that's such a steve smith john taylor thing 100 percent. apparently it it really is yep yeah but I mean, he was very, Jeff was very nice about it. And, you know, obviously it ended up, the bill ended up passing its um, second reading, I guess. I think it's on its third reading now, but I mean, it should, it should pass. And then essentially what's going to happen after that is they're going to enforce that the outside speakers get taken away. It's so, like there's one. Which I think for the most part, we were all good with. Everybody was fine <laughs> yeah, with that. Because yeah, because like, I'm that, that sick and tired of playing at a venue and being blasted by another venue speaker that, 
no like there's no need it's, it's not no if your windows are open they can hear it like and yeah that's just the, yeah you don't you don't need a 500 watt speaker sitting outside blaring it when it's generally just the just either guitar and vocals mo- mostly coming yeah it. Mm-hmm. like it's or it's there's some i noticed this the other day and it's it's funny how you kind of all of us i think because we're down there so much you can kind of like how you have blinders on a horse you kind of have blinders on your ears you mm-hmm. don't really pay attention one but yeah, when yeah 100%. but when i was downtown the other day i noticed that margaritaville has one on their roof and it literally just pumps out like r&b and like hip-hop music all day and i was like what is the purpose of that them and whiskey, and whiskey row. row have like and, dueling and it, speakers it's it's like it's like lucky bastards and, and uh nudies man yeah it's like they're competing there's no purpose no that's exactly what it is yeah. it's a competition at that yeah. point there's and literally no purpose for it um that's just annoying <laughs> yeah and so honestly i can't wait for them to take it away. i mean i feel bad one of the things that kind of came to light was a couple of bars like snitch um and redneck riviera um reached out to me and kind of said you know i get that a lot of the problematic elements of this bill were taken away but for us it's actually problematic to have our outside speakers taken because that's how we um bring in a lot of our customers and I mean no disrespect to these bars because I played for Redneck Riviera for years and I love that bar. Um, But the sad reality of like Broadway and what it's becoming down there is if you need an outside speaker to bring in an audience, then maybe your bar isn't necessary anymore. So as someone who plays snitch every Friday night, 10 to close, late night shift, we pack out that bar without the door being open or that speaker. Well, there you on. go. Yeah. So that answers that a, question. A lot then. of times the door guys out front, his name's Eli, super great guy. He tries to push people in and he does a pretty good job of it. And then depending on how busy it is outside, they'll prop the door open and that'll drive some people in. But their speaker hasn't been working the last like two weeks. And when it does, it sounds, it's just like, it sounds like garbage. <laughs> and, um, we haven't had a problem. That's great. I mean, I, every time I show thing, up, you can Kenny, still hear the music from yeah, outside. Like, and yeah. that's the point. The, if you, you open that door just to let someone in, it's already louder than that speaker is. Yes, true. And mm-hmm. you can see and hear what's going on. Like if, if they're cool with a door being open, there's no issue. And yeah. there's yet to be a gig that I've played there where they've kept the door shut. There's been a few times where they've closed it for a few minutes for I don't know what reasons, but they usually keep it open. Cool. That's great to know then because that was definitely an issue that had been brought up to me. I I get where they're coming from. They feel like they could be attacked and it's going to hurt their business. And maybe if they have like an acoustic act, I could understand that at Snitch. But every time I've been there with a full band or I've even gone there to see friends play with full bands, it's been packed. Now that being said. And it's not because of that little... And their speaker at Snitch is not a big monitor. It's literally this tiny 10-inch little square thing above the door that's like four feet above the door. Got you. So it's, in my opinion, that little speaker is not not necessary. anything at all to help them. Again, if it was an acoustic act or something, I could understand it. But also printers alley, alley being the way it is, like it draws a crowd always. Yeah. Also, directly across from Snitch is Daddy's Dogs. I can't tell you how many ah. times Daddy's Dogs people will come inside with their food and they'll tell us, "Oh, we heard you, so we just came inside." 
That's cool. Like, so, so, <laughs> so question or statement or kind of playing the opposite side here. The only thing that I could possibly see in the situation of Redneck is they've got all that construction stuff yes, going on right they're now. They're really struggling with that, and which I think really is really so easy sad. to just not see it. It is, yeah. That whole section right there and Second Avenue. Once all that construction is done and Canes opens and Chiefs opens and, and that construction isn't there anymore, that It'll be whole a different area story, is yeah. going to boom. But Absolutely. I know, like, I mean, Famous, I used to play it. <laughs> it's shut down now, but I used to play it when it was uh, Silver Dollar Saloon on 2nd Avenue. Oh, my Avenue. God, yes. I remember that. Damn, and, that was a long time mm-hmm, ago. Yeah, and, it, man, that whole 2nd Avenue used to be busy as hell. It did, yeah. And... The pandemic, the bombing, and now all that construction right there. It scares people off. Mm -hmm. It does. People are like, oh, there's nothing down there when they don't realize there's still five or six bars over there that are busy. Mm -hmm. But people see the construction and they don't even. And same thing. We play Whiskey River. I was going to ask. Yeah, it's a similar thing. You know, it's a lot of people. There's that gap. People will come there because they're walking by because they're parked over in that area right there off second or something. But I, man, I'll go, I stand in that window probably more than any other bar to try to get people in there when we're mm-hmm. playing because it is, it's it's a dead area over there. But once yeah, once sad. Chiefs opens up. Oh, that's going to be huge. And even, oh, yeah. yeah, like you said, the cane, Raising Canes or whatever it's called. Yeah, that's going to be awesome. Oh, I can't wait for Canes. <laughs> so, it's so yeah, good. No, I would definitely <sighs> say that's the big issue, right? Because it looks like Broadway ends. It does, yeah. And then does. there's still a handful of it bars does. that are trying to attract people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because before, I mean, that wasn't there, and uh, everything was open right there, mm-hmm. and people just, you had you constant walking, traffic. You had a constant, yeah, exactly. Constant traffic. Exactly. And there were so many restaurants that aren't on 2nd Avenue anymore because of the bombing. There were so many restaurants there that brought crowds, and it was just a revolving door right it there was, yeah, because people generally, I mean, yeah, before 5th and Broadway opened, that people would eat on 2nd. That was, like, where you yep. would eat. Like, you yep. wouldn't generally eat at a lot of the bars. You'd go and eat on at the restaurants on 2nd. Mm-hmm. And that's where some of the best bars were, in my opinion. Benchmark, oh, I miss that place so much. That oh, great, great bar. I loved the spaghetti factory on second. I mean, I know nice. it's not like great, but it was so cheap. Oh, it was. That's the it thing was. finding like cheaper places. To oh eat, man, like. I do miss all the cheap places to eat downtown because there used to be mm-hmm. there used to be, there so, used to be many. so many cheap places. And that that's a, like when if piranhas, you're on vacation or whatever, yeah, spend extra money on a meal. That's fine. Yeah, but when absolutely. you got to do it every day, yeah, like, like I can't be dropping thirty on bucks on Second lunch Avenue. Every day. When Piranhas used to be on 2nd Avenue before it moved to 3rd and then shut down, man, that was like the place to go. The food was cheap but so good. Mm-hmm. And if they knew that you worked downtown, they hooked you up. Like if you were a musician downtown, there's a lot you of got some kind of discount, free drinks. They always hooked you up somewhere or another where that just doesn't happen. Um, at On 5th Avenue, um, drawing a blank. Right above the 505 garage, that, that restaurant. What's it called? Um, um, Panera? No, no, no. You're talking about the, the little sports pub? The sports bar. Yeah, yeah, right above the garage. Um, Corner pub. pub? Corner pub. There we go. <laughs> nice. Corner pub. Um, it used to be when I would walk in there. Sometimes I'd walk in there with gear. Sometimes I wouldn't. But 
they would ask if you played down they were do you work or play downtown and you would mm-hmm. say yes or no and um sometimes they'd ask you to prove how or whatever but they That's would give cool. you a discount of like twenty five percent. That was my place just because they didn't have live music, and I needed to let my ears. Oh yeah, yeah. and they had they had that. they had True. good food. It wasn't super overpriced or expensive. It was at, they used to give discount. They don't do it anymore, but they used to give discounts to working musicians and people that work downtown. Now they don't do that. We need like it's just sad. like a cool little musicians lounge that serves us. Man, that would be. Fantastic. I actually I've thought they about would make that. So much money. I had a discussion with somebody about how we could somehow find a way to buy one of those buildings or rent it out on second Avenue whenever they get fixed and have it a place for just musicians, sound Mm -hmm. engineers, bartenders, people that are working split doubles and doing that. They can, there's, there'll be like little like lounge pods and a place to eat. We have talked about this dude. And I, I don't put some instrument lockers in there. You'll make bank. I've honestly contemplated on the idea, too, of because one of the venues down there used to have capacity to buy, like, guitar strings and stuff. It would be so badass if there was a vending machine downtown where you could buy shit like that. Like, single single strings, though. Like, not a pack. I actually am working on that. No shit. Mm That would be badass, dude. I actually am working on that. The biggest problem is finding a venue that is willing to watch it and look over it mm-hmm. and also not and charge you a not char- renting fee that's, or something that's 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 one of my biggest problems right now i have a friend that just got into the vending machine business and i've been talking to him and he's been able to help me out but the problem is finding space that one they can watch it and kind of monitor it but also mm-hmm. have somebody you can give them product like hey one of the managers can you just like stock this if it goes out when nobody's there. Like mm-hmm. if I can't come in and fill it up, if I'm working, yeah. you guys can do it. But everybody wants a big cut out of it. You're not making a lot of money and then you're buying, you got to find people that are willing to give you the stuff for cost. Mm-hmm. So I'm actually going to reach out to string joy to see if they can help out. Cause I know there's a lot of people that play downtown with it. And there's several bars that I play downtown that like, Hey, if we could put this in here in your little area, no, that would be fantastic. So, Just like the the super breakables or forgettables, and and I'm I'm even willing. I've even said to two venues, I'm like, look, I play here regularly, once or twice a week. I'm willing to take one of my base pays a month and give it to y'all. Okay, like, yeah, that would be cool to be as a rental space. Mm-hmm. You know, that would be amazing. But then, so it's working on it. I don't slowly with, trying to figure it out. With the bars that sell like merch and stuff, I don't understand why they're not branding this stuff. It all It'd comes be super easy. It, it's it's a bigger overhead cost than you think, and a lot of them just aren't willing to do it. It's just an extra thing that they have to keep an eye on, and I mean, I get that, I guess, but. It seems so, like such a small thing that would have such a big the, impact. The few that I've it. talked to are, are willing, and I play them regularly, and I, I, I think I've schmoozed enough that I, I might get some okays soon. That would That's be cool. Legit. We'll we'll see, see how that goes. We are we're coming up close on time. Um, I have so many more questions for you. <laughs> Uh-huh. Maybe we need to do a part two. Uh, definitely. For sure, please. Um, and I, I definitely want to bring you back on because, again, so many questions. There's so much more about Lower Broadway that I want to talk about with you in general. 
and that I, I would love for people to hear because you are so involved with everybody and everything. I mean, like you said, you, you run the, the Nashville pages, and even I recently had an incident on there where someone decided to remove me from it, and you went on very quickly <laughs> oh, yes. and changed that situation. So I'm super grateful because, again, I literally did nothing. <laughs> that was crazy. Dude. I was just there. You were just there. playing the game. I was just there. <laughs> Crazy. That was, <laughs> it happens though. I mean, I had a there was a situation too recently with somebody else where, I mean, granted, I think I think the person was joking, but it it was a it was a joke in like poor taste, and I, you know, confronted the person privately and said, look, you know, whether this was a joke or not, that's like not okay behavior for the page. Um, and you know, they stopped. Because, I mean, that's kind of, that, that was kind of I, always the point. Like, I never wanted it. And David was the same. Like, David, the original kind of creator and owner of the group, he didn't want it to be like a authoritarian, you know, group where, you know, one strike and you're out. And, yeah. you know, or, or even to use it as like a means to punish people. Like, oh, now you're not in the group. How are you going to get gigs kind of thing? Right. Um, There was always a notion of like giving people the benefit of the doubt and all of that. But at the same time, if you see stuff going on, you have to say something about it. Otherwise it just gets out of control. Yeah. Um, and I mean, similarly, there was kind of an issue with, with, with because of this Tootsie's 10% thing that was going on, you know, people kind of took that one post that was made and took that as, oh, cool. We can just shit talk Tootsie's all over this page. Yeah, that got real bad. Real yeah. And while, quick. while I completely understand why people feel that way, that's not what the page is intended for. No, no, um, no. And I mean, nobody got banned or whatever over it, but it was like, a, okay, this is going to be removed. And, you know, if you post it again, we're going to like, you're going to be suspended for a couple of days. And you kind of just have to do that. Otherwise, unfortunately, people just abuse the system. Yep. No, for yep. sure. I mean, especially this town where there's just, there's a lot of people that are here that have never had true real responsibilities and jobs and don't understand that when they say things, there's consequences and you can't just be out there saying these, um, absurd things. Cause I see a lot of, um, really, <laughs> I'm just gonna say just really inappropriate stuff posted on those pages. Like I get it. People are your friends and you're trying to be funny and y'all have that yes, camaraderie, yes. but nobody else needs to see that someone did something and gave you something and whether you're joking about it or not, there's thousands of us on there. A lot of us are super professional that are working much bigger gigs than you are. Yeah. And like, that's cool to do within your friends and after the gig or whatever. And even sometimes on stage, haha, make the joke. But like, I mean, one thing to, to kind of keep in mind is as an artistic community, we tend to be very emotional people. We are. Yeah. yeah. And when something like the Tootsies thing or the noise ordinance comes up, we react very emotionally, very mm -hmm. quickly. And sometimes you just kind of have to have the maturity to take a step back and be like, okay, so what's actually happening? Yeah. And how is my responding this way going to help anything? Yeah. Yep. And I think ultimately that's why David originally created the discussion page too, as kind of yeah. a, like, granted, it's not supposed to be like a shit talk page, but there's a little bit more leniency on that. Yeah. That, that's one where you can actually go up the and, people getting work. Yeah. That one you can go and post issues and or have a discussion about something that's that we can gum up that page and not worry about people losing right. work so yeah exactly but yeah because 
the the musicians the the not so lame gig finder page is definitely for us to find work like that that's, that's the what higher purpose yeah mm-hmm. the whole and thing most of the time is yeah. fantastic like it is and if and again yeah. if you want if you want to go on there place. and be like hey I hired somebody and they were great like hire this person yeah put that on that page that's mm-hmm. fine but going and yeah. Having your open ended discussions on that page is not where it's it's meant to be. It's not where at it's all. at. Now, no. see, I'm I'm guilty of doing those things, but on my own Facebook page. But that's my own <laughs> Facebook page. That's your page. That's your business. And I'll I post would... stuff up, and people will say shit, and I'm like, you know what? Yeah, I should take that down. I know. Like, <laughs> you're no, absolutely, I, you're I, absolutely I, fucking right. I, I should w- take that down. I was having this discussion with someone the other day because I'm. That's one thing I'm actually very bad at. I'm very bad at actually keeping up with my normal just Facebook profile. Yeah. Um, but obviously, like, there's a lot of people like you are really good at, like, just, you know, posting about your life and, you know, just the, like what it's for. And I was talking to someone about this the other day and I said, it's funny how your Facebook personality is very different. Like, not you specifically, but like people. Um, and I was talking to a, another bass player, actually. I was like, you're, it's funny how I'm sure there's a lot of people in this town that don't like you based on your Facebook personality. Yeah. And granted, that does have elements of your personality but oftentimes we're a different person online than we are in person oh, because you, you can be yeah um and i said so that i think is what some people sometimes forget in those groups is that they forget to rein in their <laughs> social yeah. media personality and yeah. keep it professional yeah. see i have the opposite pro- i forget that the person i talk to online is the same person that i see on yeah. broadway and so they'll come up and start talking to me i'm like who why, why are we having what yeah who and are then you? i'll be like oh no we had a whole conversation about this i get it now it's like sorry i only know you by your profile picture and your picture is a bird so i had somebody messaging me for months and they introduced themselves through the text message with a different name. I guess it was like their nickname. Oh. And I didn't put it to. So my Thurkey is not my real last name. It's my nickname. And so this is kind of the same thing. Like Thurkey is short for Thurkelson. And his name was short for his last name. And I didn't put it together. And so in text messages, we're having this conversation and then he commented something on my Facebook page one day that kind of like triggered something in me. So I started firing off on this guy. Like I, I was like, you don't even know who the hell I am. Lo and behold, I've been texting him for like two months <laughs> about <laughs> gigs and stuff. And then he said something. He replied a couple of days in the text messages, like making a joke out of what I said to him on there. And I was like, oh, shit. That's the same dude. Oh my god! <laughs> Damage control. I was like, "Well, I probably lost them gigs pretty quickly." Oh no! <laughs> I feel like though, if you go in and explain the situation, then it's just a really comedic moment that you share with a new friend. And I was—I mean, I, I, again, there were not any, there weren't gigs that I was like desperate for or anything. But again, it's still that that connection. Yeah, that, you know, I I may have ruined. <laughs> yeah, it's, so. it's hard. Maybe he listens to the podcast. Maybe he's like, <laughs> yeah, oh, that's go. what happened. <laughs> maybe, maybe not. <laughs> that's another thing. I, I forget guess, people listen to the podcast. Yeah, you know, <laughs> sometimes I'll say things on here, and then again, my mom the other day she called me. She's like, "Hey, Kyle," <laughs> I'm like, "Damn it!" You're like, "No!" <laughs> like, "Damn it!" Uh, he says, wait, is it Tuesday? God. You're like, how do I block you without blocking you? <laughs> my bad. All right. Well, we got to get out of here for today. Sasha, thank you so much for coming on. Oh, my I God. Thanks for having me. Please come definitely back. Wanna come, I'd love come to. Back I'd love to. We've heard your story, and now we, we have so many other questions. And yes. I'm sure other people do. Um, 
for now, where can they find you online? Where are you at? Sasha McVeigh music on more or less everything. Yeah. Keeping it and nice all the and simple. Ones. Keeping it Love simple, it. trying to. And I, I have you tagged in our story for today, as well as the post that we'll put up when everything's out so people can find you on there as well. Very Bob, cool. where can they find you at? I am at Story of Bob or Story of Bob Music pretty much everywhere. Awesome. And I'm Kyle Thurkey or Thurkey Base. Thurkey Base. Again, here I am tripping over my own words. Thurkey Base, just about anywhere and everywhere. If you're looking for me, I'm not that hard to find. And uh, until next time, AMF. Bicycle. Hey, guys. Thanks so much for listening to the podcast. We have a great time putting it on for you, so we really appreciate all of the listens. If you have any questions or want to reach out to us, we are on Facebook and Instagram. So if you just search Nashville for Nobody's Podcast, we will pop up, and you can interact with us that way. We also have some more options coming up in the future for interaction, so that'll be a whole lot of fun. So as always, it's never too late to tip your bartender, and please don't forget to tip your band.